Welcome to Wise Health for Women Radio with Linda Prater. Women are pressed daily to give more, learn more, and be more, often at the expense of mind, body, or spirit. Each week with intriguing guests and topics, we'll bring you fresh ways to view your limited time, encouraging a shift to new, healthier perspectives. Wise Health for Women Radio, helping women thrive. And now here's your host, Linda Prater. Hello, we are so very glad that you've joined us today. We have a wonderful show planned with a really favorite person of mine. We are going to be talking today about a chronic condition that affects 100 million people in the United States alone. And we're going to be talking to someone in Australia. So we'll get her take on what we're talking about in terms of the numbers and the large, the, the large population that struggles but can meet these challenges with some tips and tricks that she's going to pass on. So we are talking today with Claire Kerslake. And Claire, welcome to Wise Health for Women Radio. Thank you, Linda. It's lovely to be here. Well, I, we've had you on the show before, and it's always such a pleasure. I have to stop myself from just listening to your marvelous accent. So at any rate, let's start <laughs> with talking about the background. What is the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? And then maybe you can tell us the worldwide numbers, because I don't know them. Oh, yeah, great question, Linda. I'll take the first bit first, the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So type 2 diabetes is what we'll be talking about today and that's the most common form of diabetes. So of all the people with diabetes in the world, it affects about 85 to 90% of them. Wow. And that's what we, it's a lifestyle condition, it's a chronic condition and that's what we'll be focusing on today. But I do want to mention type 1 diabetes because there is a little bit of confusion out there and that affects um, you know, around 10 to 15% of all the people with diabetes. And that's actually quite different. It's an autoimmune condition mm -hmm. that can occur at any age, but we can see it in, you know, tiny babies mm -hmm. where the body's immune system uh, destroys some of the pancreatic cells. So they don't produce insulin at all. And these people will need to be on insulin for life to live. Right. Uh, now, now, with type 2 diabetes, people with type 2 diabetes can be on insulin, and many are, but uh, they're often also on tablets. Or some people just manage the condition with lifestyle changes. And that's the optimal way I know physicians like to try type 2 diabetes because a lot of this is lifestyle and, and can be managed well, but it when it when it first comes, or if you are elderly and you pick up uh, type two diabetes, I know my father got it um, as he got older. It's not that uncommon in the elderly, but it's kind of a shock when you're given a diagnosis of a chronic condition, and so you have a learning curve. Absolutely, it is a shock, and one of the I guess take home messages I'd like everyone to think about today is just to have an increased awareness of the risks for type 2 diabetes. Mm -hmm. And uh, you mentioned age, and that's a big risk factor. So as we're all getting older, we, we need to be thinking, okay, as <laughs> <laughs> much as I'd like oh, to. Oh, no, talk about a shocking <laughs> thought. Okay. okay. I know, I know. <laughs> but just to um, 
you know, with your yearly checkup with your doctor, just to say, um, is it time that we do the, you know, check for diabetes? Mm-hmm. So I'm in the healthy weight range, but I've got a bit of a family history of diabetes. Uh, and you've mentioned that you have. So that's something that every year I would say, okay, can we check for diabetes? Just to have that increased awareness that we all should have because for many people it's not diagnosed early because um, often people don't have symptoms. So that's absolutely key that uh, it be diagnosed uh, early so it, it can is, be treated. It's so surprising because, well, there are risk factors and I'd like it if you could uh, give us the risk profile in a few minutes. People don't always fit it. My father being a perfect example. He's physically in the same condition that he was in high school when he was playing athletics. He's, you know, proper weight, eats normally. Um, it's it's just one of those things that came on uh, very late in life. And it's, he doesn't fit what you would think of, you know, didn't get very thirsty. Any of those little things that tend to be, ooh, maybe that's what we should check for. And so I, I think people recognize that there are risk profiles and, and certain characteristics that are common, but recognize too that it may not be that common and that you may not get it unless you're in your annual exam or some other symptom crops up. I think it's important to manage that because we were all very surprised. Uh, and it can come as a shock. And just this, just the simple fact of age, mm-hmm. that's, that can be a, a big enough risk factor to, right. um, mm-hmm. yeah, just to raise the, okay, this is something that we need to check for. But mm-hmm. it does come as a bit of a shock. And, um, yeah, to have a chronic condition that just isn't going to go away, that's right. The good news is, though, it can be managed. And that is such a, it's a really wonderful thing these days that we have people like you, diabetes educators, who can help people with that transition between diagnosis and then management. And we'll talk more about that. But first, go into some other risk factors. Oh, sure. Yes. So common risk factors are family history. So they're a couple that we can't do anything about our age and family history. We've sort of got the genetics that we're born with. Um, Being above the healthy weight range is a big one. And over the last, say, 20 years, the population really worldwide has, the weight has exploded really significantly. Mm -hmm. So we have many more of our population being overweight uh, and being inactive. And, and similarly, uh, many people now live much more sedentary lifestyle than, say, um, our parents did. Uh, we've talked about increasing age. Um, if a woman has had gestational diabetes during their pregnancy, that's a bit of a red flag and to know, okay, this is something I need to check for. Mm-hmm. And also our ethnic background. So um, in the US, um Uh, People from, say, an African-American background, Mm -hmm. uh, Latino background, Native Americans, Asian background, Pacific Islanders. Mm -hmm. And here in Australia with our um, Indigenous Aboriginal population, very Mm -hmm. high risk factors, Um, Asian again, Indian, yes. So um, our ethnic background isn't something that we can get away from either. So that puts us in a higher risk group. Yes. But it does also put you in a knowledgeable group. 
so that if you think about this, one of the reasons we're sharing this show is because we want people to be thinking about these risk factors. And we will talk throughout the show on prevention and then, of course, management tips and tricks. But if you do know you're in a higher risk category and have the potential or a family history, uh, then you have the opportunity to learn about it first. And then it really becomes easier to manage or you prevent it in the first place until either age or history catches up with you. That's a really good point, uh, Linda, about prevention. What we do know is that we can uh, prevent um, or lower the risk of developing type 2 diabetes by about 58% with just some lifestyle changes such as becoming more active, mm-hmm. um, uh, losing weight in a healthy way, so about 7% of our weight, if we're overweight, uh, can make a huge, absolutely huge difference to um, our risk of developing type 2 diabetes. So prevention is key. If we know we're in a higher risk group, um, just to sort of say, okay, I need to become more active, I need to um, follow a healthy diet, now, yeah. I'm intrigued because I didn't know that statistic of 7% of your weight. What is the magic of 7%? Good, que- good question. It seems to be a bit of a magic number. Ah. Um, sort of 7 to 10% is probably the range. There's been a couple of big studies worldwide that replicated the same result uh-huh. which showed where they uh, took a group of people and... Um, um, took them through a uh, like a gym program with uh-huh. more activity and uh, slow gradual weight loss and healthy diet and that that was what they found that um, uh, that they're able to reduce those risks so so that seven percent which is about say if you're 200 pounds that's about um, now 14 pounds yeah yeah so it can make a big difference and often for many people when they're overweight, um, the weight collects around the tummy, around the belly, right. and that seems to be the factor. Um, reducing that waist circumference makes a really big difference. So even though someone might still not be uh, it, uh, down to target weight, having lost that 14 pounds, say, uh, can be a huge, yeah, But that's not overwhelming. That's actually really terrific. If you're 200 pounds and you have to lose 14 pounds, that is not an overwhelming amount. You can do that slowly over time and you can do it with activity and diet or you can do it with one or the other depending on what works for you. I always recommend both because it's it's a good lifestyle thing to, to be more active and to eat healthfully anyway but talking about um, prevention and we'll get more into prevention after the break but lifestyle factors uh, the sedentary part I think that's the hardest one to break these days and we are so connected via technology um, but it also involves our standing still uh, or sitting down and that is more sedentary so you may be very connected and you think you're active because you're getting up and moving from room to room to room. But if you stop and look, and some people have those Fitbits that are checking their 10,000 steps a day, 
you're not going to be moving as much as you think you are unless you're actively actively taking walks or uh, running or biking or any of those things. And I, I think we delude ourselves sometimes with how, quote, active we really are. When you start to track it, it's a little scary. So when we come back, we're going to talk about further efforts and factors of prevention and management of type 2 diabetes. We're talking with Claire Kerslake from Australia, and we'll be back after these short messages. Don't go away. We're Wise Health for Women Radio, and we'll return after these short messages. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Did you know that the average teenager drinks twice as much soda as milk? Since 1983, sugar consumption in the U.S. is up 28%. Why is that? There are several reasons, but one of the most common is soft drinks. 20-ounce beverages have become the norm, and it's not surprising to find that 43% of our sugar comes from drinks. Sugar is blamed for poor nutritional diets. USDA data shows that people whose diets are high in added sugar eat less calcium, fiber, iron, protein, and many other important nutrients. Fat-free foods are also a culprit. Since sugar is fat-free, many people tend to think it's okay to eat as much as they want. Remember that just because a food is fat-free does not mean that it's calorie-free also. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. February is that time of year when we think of love, valentines, and candy. Remember that all candy is not created equal. When purchasing that valentines candy for your special someone, gravitate over to the chocolate. According to Harvard University, researchers found that eating chocolate five times or more a week reduced the occurrence of heart disease on the subjects that they studied by 57%. They also found that indulging in the same amount of non-chocolate candy increased the prevalence of heart disease by 49%. Dark chocolate is the best for you, so choose to eat an ounce of dark chocolate every few days. It's a great way to indulge yourself while staying healthy. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. For more fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Claire Kerslake about living with diabetes. And while we were on the break, we were talking about um, prevention factors, etc. And I said that you know, when I took the time to track both what I ate and my activity level, I was really astounded to find out that certain things like house cleaning or yard work used a large number of calories versus sometimes when you go to play tennis or you go skiing or skating or something like that. And it's, it's very interesting to do that tracking. So I, I do like to learn. I'm not, I didn't think I would like keeping track, but it's a smartphone app and it was very easy to use. And so you can adjust very easily when you've got something like that. People have 
other technology. As I mentioned, there's Fitbit, there's your Apple Watches and all kinds of things. But no technology is going to help you unless you use it. That's right, Linda. And uh, it's it's really interesting. Tracking really does change our behaviour. Just the fact of where it can be like a really simple pedometer. Mm-hmm. And of course, these days with our smart devices, they're much more sophisticated, as you mentioned, uh, increases our activity. So it can make a huge difference, actually, that tracking. Um, we, you know, we tend to want to reach a, a certain goal, might be a step goal or, or a, a activity goal. So they can make a real difference. And it can be quite, um, you know, quite uh, illuminating too because mm-hmm. we can realise, okay, how sedentary you actually are and right. that you're not often doing as much as you think you're doing. And these days we're often much more sedentary with our screen time and our occupations. Um, just even, you know, we've heard about sitting as the new smoking. So just to, to vary Isn't if you that can dreadful? between sitting I've, and standing. I've heard that, yep. Yeah, just that's probably a, a topic for a whole, conver- you know, mm-hmm. a whole, conver- whole other conversation. But right. uh, just to vary, if, you, if you're in an occupation or you tend to be sitting a lot, just to get up and move or to have some time if you can do what you're doing from a standing position at times, mm-hmm. uh, that can make a huge difference, really big difference. What I found fascinating about tracking it was I didn't get bored with tracking it. I actually became intrigued by it because I realized, oh, uh, if I do uh, X in terms of exercise, etc., and I'm eating health fully, then I can balance that out. And so you actually learn to manage via this very smart tool. And I think what you just said is important. We tend to make generalizations. Oh, I'm active. Look at me, I'm active. But you may not be quite as active as you think unless you actually track it for a week. And that's what usually the recommendation is. Track track your activity and your nutrition for a week to see how it is. I tracked it a lot longer, mostly because... I found that, boy, I could make some little changes, very small changes, and it made a difference. And I think that small steps help encourage us toward small accomplishments. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. And, in fact, I'd even go one step further, Linda. Small steps are absolutely vital. And for someone perhaps newly diagnosed with diabetes or they they have had it for a while, Mm Often health professionals say, well, you need to change this and we need to do that and be advising them to make quite big changes. In fact, that's not where those long-term changes will come about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I used to think like that and then I've done a lot of study and research into how to create healthy habits and those tiny little changes mm-hmm. that you can anchor in and so they become part, they become your habits and they become part of your life so you don't even think about them anymore. So those small changes, uh, even though you might think, okay, I've got a lot to do, you know, start really tiny and anchor those uh, changes in, it makes a huge, huge difference. I love that anchor your changes in. That's a, that's a nice visual for me um, because I, I think you're right. As you start to pay attention to something and if you realize it really wasn't as painful or as huge a change as you thought it might be, and it really didn't take that much effort, there's a book called The Slight Edge um, by Jeff Olson, and it talks about that 
you know, those who manage to change their habits are taking small steps that are easy to do, but they're just as easy not to do. And so the slight edge philosophy says take those small changes and, as you said, anchor them in, and then it builds to a larger set of changes. A huge goal is a great thing in terms of a vision board, but it can also be discouraging. It can be, Linda, that's right. And the beautiful thing about starting small, as you start to um, anchor those changes in, and they become part of your life, you'll quite naturally be starting to improve other areas of your life. It's a little bit like magic. It sort of seems to happen. So you'll actually build <laughs> on those without even choosing to sometimes. It's it's amazing. The other thing that I've often noticed too is in families, if one person is making the changes and there's some resistance to making general family changes, as progress is made or changes are noted and it didn't appear to be difficult in terms of impossible, unhappy, miserable, that people will often support those changes. Now, it can work in reverse too. We've all known about saboteurs who sit and say they don't want you to change or they don't want to change themselves, so they don't want to change. But let's go the positive route, that as you make changes, and I'll use children as an example, as you make changes to the way you cook or what you eat, if, if it's still tasty and it's still filling and it's still delicious, then that you're inculcating healthy habits in your children without them even noticing. Huge, absolutely huge, Linda. Well, yeah, who we surround ourselves with makes a, a really big difference in our health and our weight and our lifestyle, mm-hmm. and particularly with kids. And uh, one of the sad things about the um, the increase in our weight uh, worldwide is that's happened with our kids. And we're now seeing type 2 diabetes in children now, which is something that, right. say, 20 years ago we rarely saw. So what we do as parents and caregivers uh, has a really big impact on our kids. And, in fact, there's a statistic that says, say, one person does the main shopping for the house, huh? that person controls most of the food decisions in the house just naturally. So, wow. for instance, not, not having the unhealthy snacks around uh, can make a big difference, you know, uh, popping the fruit out so uh, that the kids have got healthy snacks. Just things like that, being more active as a family, uh, just a huge flow-on impact to our kids and, and our other family members as well. Well, it also helps to figure out wh- why you're eating it. Part of it is the grocery store retail mentality. Um, they make it really easy just to grab bags of stuff. And so the the way you can combat that, and I'm sure you're going to go into this, is that when you plan ahead, you know, you mentioned the grocery shopping, but if you're the one planning ahead or fortunate enough to make the grocery list, even if someone else goes and buys it, then if you do plan ahead, you're less likely to grab something at a weak moment. And I, my little trick is if, if it's yummy, like chocolate-covered almonds, I hide them behind something in the pantry, so I absolutely have to move the thing in the front to get to the thing in the back. And that gives me just enough time to reconsider. 
What a wonderful strategy, Linda. And I, I, for me, I've got to even go one step further. I've got to actually not have them in the house. Okay. Because <laughs> I'll find them. But having things out of sight right. is perfect. Some people will pop them in somewhere really inconvenient, like say the right. laundry cupboard, right. where you actually have to make a decision to go and get them. If they're in plan view, like if you've got a cookie jar out in the yeah. counter, you know, get it in a cupboard or somewhere high or just out of the road. So it's a definite decision to have to go and do that rather than be automatic. Yeah. Well, yeah. If you see like it, that. you suddenly want it. I don't know how people keep candy bowls on their desk, unwrapped candy. You know, so the the way someone said it to me one day was, would you want to go put your hand in and grab a handful of M&Ms if you knew 50 hands had been in that bowl? I am no longer even tempted to to reach for a, a bowl on someone's desk. <laughs> That's a lovely reframe, Linda, because often you wouldn't even think about that. You'd just be thinking about the M&Ms. Right. Yeah. right. Yeah. And, and I think it's funny. I also read a stat, tell me if you've heard this one, that says if you stop for just 20 seconds to really consider, do I want that, it often, about 70% of the time, you will make the correct decision. If you really, really want it, you will say, yes, I am willing to make you know adjustments elsewhere. But 70% of the time or more, you end up, saying no I really don't need it I'm bored or I'm you know unhappy or, or what it may be so uh, again little tips and tricks but that's a that's a pretty easy one yes and that's a beautiful question because often we uh, sort of brings up the topic of emotional eating and comfort eating which many of us do mm-hmm. so we just seek to you know eat or drink to get rid of you know like bored lonely sad cross um and just to ask that question, do I really want this or um, what do I really need? And for me, when I've, I've asked that question and, you know, I've loved chocolate in the past. I'm Right. Yes, uh, that's right. But, um, okay, what do I need? And sometimes I just need to sit down and a cup of tea. Sometimes I just need some space. Perhaps I'm tired. Perhaps I need a 10-minute nap. So that question, do I really want it? What do I really need? It puts a little bit of space between that decision and that automatic decision, okay, I really, really want that chocolate. Mm -hmm. Or, okay, perhaps, no, I don't. Perhaps that won't meet my needs. I need a little bit of quiet time or something else instead. So a beautiful question just to give that little bit of space and we're actually meeting our true needs rather than having some chocolate that won't meet our needs at all and will leave us feeling guilty afterwards. You know, it may be morning yeah, where so you are, but it's nighttime where I am, and this is my week time. So the chocolate, we've <laughs> got to get off this topic. We are coming up on another break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about your willpower and how you can design your life and plan to make life work so much more smoothly if you have diabetes. We are talking with Claire Kerslake coming to us from Australia about living with diabetes. And we'll be back after these messages. We're Wise Health for Women Radio and we'll return after these short messages. Merge 
Have you noticed that no matter how carefully you put the Christmas lights away, they still come out all cringle-crangled and jitterty-jitterty the next year? Christmas tree lights were invented in 1882 by Thomas Edison, and by 1900, these miniature versions of his electric light bulb were being advertised to the public. In 1895, Grover Cleveland proudly sponsored the first electrically lit Christmas tree in the White House, featuring more than a hundred multicolored lights. By the next Christmas, members of high society were hosting flambustious Christmas tree parties. Of course, in those early days, the services of a wireman had to be obtained, as many people had considered electricity as a bit of a bugaboo. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert Annette Hammond. Osteoporosis affects 10 million people in the U.S. and is described as a generalized loss of bone density, causing skeletal weakness. When the amount of bone falls below a certain threshold, fractures occur with little or no trauma. There are 206 bones in your body, and everyone is crucial to staying active and pain-free as you age. Exercise is one of the most beneficial things you can do for your bones. Choose weight-bearing exercises, especially weightlifting, to keep your bones strong and to prevent bone loss. To improve bone density, the key is to keep your feet on the ground, such as walking, running, or aerobic dance. The impact of your heel hitting the floor sends a vibration through your skeleton that stimulates cell growth in the bones. Exercise helps prevent bone loss. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. Like us on Facebook. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Claire Kerslake. And Claire, let's talk about the importance of willpower. How do you build it? How do you keep it? And what do you do if you slip? Oh, beautiful questions, Linda. Yes. And (laughs) I think there's a myth around uh, not only health professionals, but people uh, generally who might be trying to change their habits that they need to have more willpower. So we might slip up and that's actually human to do that. And we beat ourselves up and think, oh, I just need to have more willpower, which, which actually isn't helpful. And um, we can approach it in a much better way. So uh, there's a myth there that, you know, uh, if we just had more willpower, we'd be right. Willpower, actually, you can build it up, but it depletes over time. So through the day, if we've had to use our willpower a lot, we get to the end of the day and... Um, the evening, and that's why you know, we can be good in inverted commas all day, follow our, you know, our eating, healthy eating, and we get to four or five o'clock, we're tired, we might not have had a good day, uh, and our willpower seems to go out the window. We will used it through the day. So ideally, if we can structure our lives so that we don't have to use it as much, and it's a little bit like what we talked about before in you know, keeping things out of sight, out of the house if possible, or at least out of sight. And we're not having to continually uh, exercise our willpower, say if there's cookies on the counter, say, oh, no, I'm not going to have a cookie, I'm not going to have a cookie. If we can't see that, uh, we don't have to exercise our willpower to um, not have the cookies. Mm -hmm. So then we get to the end of the day and our willpower is still fairly well um, replenished. 
One of the reasons, for instance, if we're going through the supermarket, and for me, disaster time is if I have to shop after <laughs> a big day at work uh-huh. and I'm tired and there's all these lollies and sweets and uh, chocolates around, it's absolutely disaster. And that's why supermarkets will often have uh, sweets in the, uh, near the, the checkout, checkout aisle. Right. Because mm, we might have made, you know, 100 decisions in that shop We've got no willpower by the time we get to the checkout and uh, we just say, oh, well, I'll just have this. You know, I've had a big day or whatever, however we justify it. But there's been some really interesting research that if they put healthy things at the checkout, might be fruit or even dental floss, etc. they'll sell more of those. So whatever they put at the checkout, they'll sell more of. So I just wish Sometimes supermarkets could design things a little bit more healthily, but uh, they're the sort of things that we can help us to, if we design our life so we don't have to use our willpower quite so much. It uh, it's really quite useful. It's funny. I read about something yeah. called decision overload. So if we are making decisions all day long, you mentioned your difficult time is in the evening after you have been making decisions all day. I think it's common for most of us. And it it is easy to make the wrong decisions at the grocery store, but decision overload can also make us make the poor decision not to exercise. We know we would like to go to the gym or a walk makes us feel good, but when we're fatigued and worn out and made too many decisions it can also keep us from making the good decisions that's right you know it can feel like the last thing you want to do interestingly enough uh, green exercise which is exercise outside is one of the things that we can do to increase our willpower so uh, they're not quite sure how it worked but um, it's really interesting it just seems to work so uh, that's right. That, that decision making, that planning, if we plan that exercise into our diary, uh, that it's easier to decide to do it then. It's not if we if we go by our okay, exercise when I have time, that's sort of code for it's not going to happen. But if we can sort of plan <laughs> our week ahead of time, right. uh, it much higher um, it's a much higher um, it's more likely to happen if we can do that planning. So that's important as well. Now, another thing that often helps people is having someone as an accountability partner, whether you call them that or not, but just saying we are going to go for walks on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday mornings. And you encourage each other because you don't want to disappoint the other person. And you both state it out loud that this is what you want to do. Um, I mean, I find it to help me if I need to accomplish something that's unrelated to our discussion today. But if I need to accomplish it, I will make it publicly known to people important to me so that they are there to say, how are you doing on that? And I think the same holds true for exercise and and eating green or any of those. I love the green exercise. To me, that just being outdoors is a gift because we're inside so much. So it makes no, it makes good sense to me why green exercise works. But talk about the importance of hydration because you haven't mentioned that yet. And I think oftentimes when we think we're hungry, sometimes you're just thirsty. 
Yeah, that's true, Linda. Often we don't drink enough and I'm, I need to consciously make sure I drink more. It can certainly be easy for the hours to fly by and you haven't had much to drink. And looking at what we, what we drink, you know, water is the best. So if we can drink uh, beautiful, fresh, clean water is probably the best but you're right if we think we're hungry just to check in once again okay do I need to have a drink perhaps you know uh, if I haven't had a drink for a while have a drink see how that goes hydration is absolutely vital for for us as well um, it also helps yes. fatigue because you can get tired and then you want a snack and you want a sugar boost and, and something like that so hydration actually fulfills a number of things and if you find you know a, a flavored water or something that doesn't have any nasty stuff in it um, and you have to be careful because a lot of things that are sold taste good but aren't too good for you and you kind of have to watch that but if you can find it it's another small change that if it's in front of you you will drink it that's right. Putting that, putting it in front of you on your desk or wherever, uh, you might, um, you know, mark off how many glasses you've had through the day if that works for you. And it's interesting, Linda, going back to what you said about accountability. That's really interesting. I find accountability really works for me. Mm-hmm. I've just read Gretchen Rubin's latest book on different personality types around habits, and. Uh, really fascinating work and uh, I'm sure that will be built with on with research etc depending on your personality types for some people accountability definitely doesn't work you know they they might be rebellious they think no I'm going to do it my way or I'm not going to do it just because she said so <laughs> I think it works for the vast majority of people but once again it's down to what works for you right and um, just picking and changing what works in your life and how you think uh, makes a really big difference. Now, what do you say to those who say, well, I've tried X and I've tried Y and I've tried Z and then they make a blanket generalization, nothing works for me? Yeah, yeah, really, really uh, good question. I'd be I'd be digging into that if that was a client that had come to me. Mm-hmm. I'm digging into that just a little bit more to see what's below that, and and there might be some underlying beliefs, a bit of resistance to change, mm-hmm. and just because often people haven't tried everything, might feel like they have, just to dig in. Okay, what is going to work? What's worked in the past? Often. <laughs> Human beings are, are very interesting creatures. We just forget sometimes what's worked in the past. So I often think, okay, think back to a time that, that maybe something did work. And often it's, oh, the light, the light bulb goes on and you think, oh, that's right. Back then I used to do X and I, was, I really loved it. Mm-hmm. And so we might explore that. So it's just to think about, okay, what didn't work and why? Is it worth trying that again? And what's worked in the past? And in my life, I've tried things I thought would absolutely never work. So just to have that real lightness around um, trying things, uh, you know, it's not life or death. We're just going to give this a go. And just even for a short time or a short time frame, just to have that lightness doesn't work. That's okay. Um, Creating healthy habits is all about trial and error. So it's okay, instead of beating ourselves up, well, that's another thing that didn't work, 
thinking, okay, okay, well, that didn't work. I wonder why. Is it the time? Is Do we need to do something else? Just that real lightness, which is very different energy around experimenting with what's going to work in your life. And if that doesn't work, let's have a look at something else. So uh, I just encourage that lovely lightness um, and experimentation around habits. And you'll be amazed sometimes at the things that you thought would absolutely never work uh, that are amazing. I agree with you. And, and I, I encourage myself, and I, I really do mean this, I, I try to do new things because, you know, why wouldn't I try them? It may not work, but I would like to try it. Of course, I'm ruling out anything dangerous uh, or illegal, but trying new things can open your mind to other other opportunities that come along and that's that's really fun actually when you step outside your comfort zone even a little bit because we all have different risk uh, profiles but if you take just a little step out sometimes you just marvel at yourself you say you know I didn't think I could do that but I did and isn't that victory uh, another small step Oh, it's fantastic. Yes, we can get it a bit set in our way sometimes. So that lovely sense of play and, oh, let's give this a go and let's try this uh, is absolutely fantastic. Yes, we can sometimes forget to do that and life can get a bit serious sometimes. But adding that sense of play and fun and um, trying new things is is wonderful. And I, I think that as as we get older, we don't want to be seen as either silly or humiliated or, or any of those things but I, I find I actually am going the other way I'm thinking well why not try it and if someone laughs I'll laugh at me first um, because I, I, I wanted to try it I think it's fun um, I do always laugh at the saying um, the ark was built by amateurs the titanic was built by professionals <laughs> why not try <laughs> I something i love that and i and i just think it's it's kind of an impetus to take a step out of your comfort zone every once in a while because it helps you to personally grow and in case of managing diabetes might just give you a tip that changes your world for the better so unfortunately we're coming up on our final break of the show and when we come back we're going to talk about dealing with a chronic disease the importance of planning and we're talking with Claire Kerslake about living with diabetes we'll be right back after these messages We're Wise Health for Women and we'll return after these short messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff. And find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. 
It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. At any given time, millions of Americans are on a diet and on a quest to lose weight. Discovery Health says that the only way to lose fat is to consume fewer calories per day than your body needs. For every 3,500 calories that your body takes from its fat reserves, you lose one pound. You can create that deficit by monitoring and restricting your intake of calories alone. But I believe that the best approach is to exercise and cut back on your calories. By upping your daily exercise and scaling back on your consumption of calories, you are giving yourself a healthy balance that will pay off great dividends. So be sure to add daily exercise to your quest to lose weight. Health, well-being, and a slim body awaits you. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. Welcome back. We're continuing our discussion with Claire Kerslake. And Claire, let's talk as we wrap up the fourth segment here with the importance of planning and and what are some tips and tricks that you would suggest people try as they're going along this continuum of care as they've been diagnosed, they're getting it under control, uh, they're making changes and, and they're in a management. There are phases to any chronic condition, but how do we get it the most stable and, and how does planning fit in with that? Uh, great question, Linda. I think planning is absolutely vital. And to build on what we talked about before, it's having that lovely sense of lightness and experimenting around it. But as I said before, if we just fit in our you know, healthy diet and our exercise when they fit into our life, it will never happen because life's very busy for all of us, really. We've got either caring responsibilities, often jobs, families. And so sometimes it's okay, where can I make this a priority? And it's putting yourself and your health first. And it might well be that the more, and knowing yourself as well or experimenting with the times, for instance, that you might exercise uh, is important. You might try, okay, let's try it in the morning. So you slot that in and look in your days, okay, when will that uh, fit? It's also being willing to think outside the square. An example of where that might be in my life might be, okay, instead of, uh, you know, sitting chatting um, in the tea room with my lunch or even worse, eating lunch at my desk, I'm going to take 10 minutes of that and go for a walk outside. Mm -hmm. So you can divide your exercise up into, you know, smaller segments. So just have a sense of, I could actually do that. Uh, especially if we're time-strapped, which many people are, just to be willing to, you know, have a bit of a play and a, a try of, okay, well, is this actually going to work? Um, also can be how can we more be more active while we're doing other things? So just have a think of, okay, in the context of a very busy life, what actually can I do? Mm-hmm. And, for instance, you might find that the morning doesn't work for you. You're better off doing in the middle of the day or, you know, when you in the evening just to see where is it going to fit. And there's some days, well, that's absolutely a no-go zone. That's not going to work. But maybe I can do it here. So just to look ahead. So that's around exercise. When I'm thinking about um, 
uh, my meals for the week and planning the meals, that for me is a deal breaker because if I haven't taken the time to do that, uh, you know, I'm tired, I'm hungry, I've got to cook dinner, um, you hit the supermarket and it's just a recipe for disaster for me. But if I know, okay, <laughs> I think for I've got everyone. the ingredients. Oh, right. absolutely. I've got the ingredients in the, in the kitchen. I've, I've known ahead that perhaps this day is going to be very busy. We need to have a really quick meal that night. But I've got those healthy ingredients. I know they're in the cupboard or the, the, the fridge. It uh, makes it just everything so much easier. So for me, that planning is is absolutely important. It might be too another um, hint and tip. You know, you might cook up on a day that you might uh, have more time. Might be the weekend for some people. Some meals that you can use through the week. It might be looking through your recipe books and thinking, okay, look this this meal, this meal. They're really quick, uh, but healthy. But perhaps I can put them on those nights. So that planning ahead is really important. Putting a priority on it as well. You know, I often say to clients, okay, you imagine it was the doctor's appointment. You know, you mm. wouldn't sort of think, think, okay, well, I don't really feel like doing that today, so I won't worry. Uh, we right. don't do that. Uh, it's putting that sort of a priority on ourselves as well is, is very important. And when you say planning, is this something that you would put in your calendar or, as you say, in your diary? Yes. Yeah, okay. absolutely. I would. I'd pop in, okay, this is my uh, day I'm going to do my weights or I might do a bike ride here or, mm -hmm. yeah, I definitely look at my week ahead. That's something that works for me and uh, can be quite useful to see, okay, where am I going to slot it in? And some days it might be different to others. So uh, that's rather than get to the day and think, oh, no, I really don't feel like doing that today, um, to have that, okay, that's something that I've set aside. That's what I'm going to do. Um, yeah, for me that really works. I think that it'll work for many people as well. I agree with you. And I, I think that um, planning is important. But let's talk about what happens when your planning goes awry. When the best plan in the world that wasn't an overly aggressive plan, that was a reasonable plan, but life still got in the way and your plan was overcome by events. So there are many different ways that people react to when they slip or have a failure or just make a mistake. And so talk about how you would reframe, you know, a, a slip of a day, two days, two weeks and how you would start people back again? Oh, beautiful question, Linda, because we tend not to be good at this. Our default tends to be let's speed ourselves up and it can all feel so helpless when, in mm -hmm. fact, this is actually normal. Slip-ups are normal. They're part right. of life. So it's how we approach that. And I really encourage self-compassion is really important, not to say, okay, that, that's all right, we're not going to worry about that, but to say, okay, this is actually human to slip and we look at why we slipped. So it might well be that our plan just wasn't appropriate for us. might well be that we got sick. Uh, maybe we need to look at our thinking. Do we need to put some other strategies in around that plan uh, that are going to work a little bit better? Um, what's our plan B or plan C? So just to look with that, once again, that lovely sense of lightness around, okay, what actually did happen? And how can we tweak that? 
and adjust our plan and go, go move forward. You know, what's going to happen in the future? Can we make that a little bit a little bit better? As okay. an example for me. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I'm, I'm just, just thinking, thinking. No, go ahead. Oh, sorry, Linda. <laughs> uh, I was just going to say as an example for me, what I've found is I can talk myself out of anything, particularly exercise. You know, I oh, know I don't feel like it or this or that. So my strategy around that after slipping up and listening to that little voice was, okay, just do it. I don't think about it, just start. So that's an example where, you know, I could have beaten myself up for having no willpower, but no, I, I just, okay, instead of listening to that little voice, you can actually going to start, make a start. So that's just an example of that. I am liking those little voices to a Disney movie when we were kids and it was the, the little devil on the one shoulder and the little angel on the other shoulder. And um <laughs> If I, if I am talking negatively to myself, I think, you know, I've got to flick the one off my shoulder. And I agree with you. Sometimes you just have to start. Because if you wait for the perfect timing in life, there is no such thing. That's true, yes. And I love that analogy of flicking that little devil off your shoulder. It's beautiful. <laughs> I'm very visual. I, it, it has to be real for me. So as you're looking at the diabetes management as a whole, and we have, you know, five or six minutes more. Talk about the most important pieces that you feel people should know about um, to, to find out how to educate themselves better, to try new things, to eat differently, to exercise differently. What are some general guidelines that you would share so that people understand that dealing with a chronic disease is common? You know, whether it's an autoimmune disease, whether it's um, an injury, whether it is diabetes or conditions such as that, how would you manage it? Yeah. Yes. No, great question, Linda. It's that the, one of the problems of dealing with a chronic disease is it just doesn't go away. You can, it, It's right. all about best management, though. One of the beauties I think about diabetes is that there's been a lot of research in the area and we know that we can reduce the risk of developing complications quite dramatically with good management. So um, our lifestyle management and everything we've been talking about it absolutely underpins everything. Now, having said that, having really good contact with our medical team mm -hmm. is, is really important. So I sort of think of the, you know, the client or it would be myself if I was in that position as being the centre of everything. And then you have a team of support people around you. So that might be your doctor. So to have those regular blood tests that they recommend is important. Mm -hmm. Might be monitoring, might be seeing a diabetes educator or uh, if it's a different chronic disease, another health professional. Might be having an exercise uh, professional help you with your exercise, a dietitian. So this whole team, the support of your family is mm -hmm. very important. Um, you know, they say it takes a village to raise a child. I think sometimes it takes a village to handle a chronic disease and just, you know, allowing yourself well to be put. supported mm -hmm. by, uh, by those, those team members. Yeah. And, and to be kind to yourself. You mentioned self-compassion, and I, th I think that's true. There are going to be days that you really are tired of this chronic disease, and you can't, unfortunately, flick them off your shoulder. But taking the time, you made an excellent point when you said 
you by planning and taking these small steps, you will reduce the risk of the complications. That's important. So I want to make sure people know where to find out more information about you. So could you please give out your website and tell them what they might find there? Oh, thank you, Linda. Yes, I'm at just my name, actually, clairekerslake.com. And uh, so that's C-L-A-I-R-E-K-E-R-S-L-A-K-E. And I consider myself a healthy habits mindset mentor. So all around developing those healthy habits and support, how we can support ourselves because it's quite different. We're not taught this stuff in schools. Mm -mm. Uh, We should be. Uh, It doesn't come naturally to us. But, you know, it's just how to develop those healthy habits, how to develop your willpower, how to design your life so you don't need it, Uh, all of those things that absolutely support our, um, our health. I love that. Healthy Habits Mindset Mentor. I love that. I can't say it three times fast, but I I like that very much. (laughs) Claire Kerslake. You can find out more at clairekerslake.com, living with diabetes. And as she said, she's a Healthy Habits Mindset Mentor. And I encourage you to go to the website and take a look. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today because it's so much easier when there are other people in your stable to help you to stay on track and to stay positive. So we're very appreciative of you joining us today. And for those of you who want more information, please go to clairekerslake.com and find out more. You are listening to Wise Health for Women Radio, and we will be back next week with more interesting guests and topics. And we wish you a wonderful week ahead. Talk to you next week. Thank you for tuning in today. You can find more shows at wisehealthforwomenradio.com.